Hello, and welcome to the Humanities Pod. I'm Annette Richards, and today we're talking about the emotions, early Christianity, and the role of feeling in the creation of new religious identities. My guest is Georgia Frank, Professor of Religion at Colgate University and a Fabrication Fellow at the Society for the Humanities this year. Some stories do have morals, but I don't see it as much as inculcating dogma or so on. It's it's really about plunging you into a messy situation and feeling all kinds of emotions, whether it's from compassion to pity to anguish. Georgia's research focuses on sacred stories, the senses, and materiality in the first 600 years of Christianity, and especially on how the fabrication and circulation of emotions defined public life in Mediterranean antiquity. The project she's working on this year is titled Feeling Christian, the re-education of the emotions among the laity in Christian late antiquity. Georgia, welcome to the pod. Before we get into the emotions, though, let's begin with the body, if those two can be separated. Mm-hmm. Your most recent book, the collection The Garb of Being, explored bodily experience in the ancient world. And I'm wondering about the degree to which notions of embodiment for the ancients are ones that we would recognize today, or if you like, how and whether late ancient Christian bodies might be different from ours in the 21st century. How do you approach that as a scholar? Well, I think the recognition is an important place to start because we probably would recognize the bodies of the ancients, but the stories around the bodies are what interest me. Um, We have to think about whether we've inherited some ideas that bodies and minds are separate things. And I think the late ancient Christians didn't see it that way. To them, mind and body were were one thing. And so these questions about mind and body were not seen as mind and body at war with each other. And the place to really think about that was in terms of early Christian monasticism. So a little background on early Christianity Uh, The first 300 years or so, it was an outlawed religion, and uh, bodies were being put to death in some places. Uh, So bodies were were kind of uh, alienating for some. And yet it was also a religion that was deeply invested in bodies because one of its main beliefs was that God had become a human body. So the human body meant something. What happens after it becomes legalized, it becomes accepted, is that bodies now have to be figured out in a new way. And you don't have martyrs anymore. And one way to figure them out is to think about early Christians who decided to remake their own bodies. And that's the earliest days of monasticism or becoming a monk. That might mean withdrawing from society, living out in the deserts of the ancient Mediterranean, And the stories about those bodies, those bodies that see themselves as somehow perfectible bodies, were bodies that denied themselves sleep and food and sex. And so this this asceticism set in. 
It's often been seen as a form of body hating. And I got very interested in embodiment because when you think about uh, these practices, they are actually more about um, thinking about ways of engaging bodies in seeking other realities, in coming to other kinds of awareness. And so the embodiment became an interesting way about how to live into a certain set of ideas in a more positive way um, than it had been read when it was seen as a war between bodies and minds. I think of the different stories told about, on the one hand, martyrs, Mm -hmm. where the body in pain or the tortured body is right at the center. And on the other hand, angels, Mm -hmm. or the transcendence of the body in angels, those bodiless figures who seem to be the ideal or the goal of that monastic training. It's interesting to think of those as being fundamentally imbricated, one in the other, rather than separate ideas. That's the interesting question about asceticism. As you put it so well, it's between, is it a continuity with the martyr's body, the suffering body, or is it a transcendence of the body to become the angelic body, which angels were considered to be bodiless. And yet these ascetics often adopted practices where they deeply engaged their bodies. They were turned onto their own bodies in order to become a different kind of body. So it's not killing a body or annihilating a body. It's really a way of thinking about how to materialize an angelic body. We have these material bodies. How do we use them to become angelic? The language of angels is also a very important one, not as a way of escaping the body, but really is one of of becoming even more embodied. Thinking about the relation of one body to another, especially in this monastic context, Mm -hmm. let's talk about singing and singing together. You've written about song in this context. And can you tell us a little bit about how practices of singing together enter into your stories about early Christians? I'm really glad you mentioned that because one of the first stories about monks that interested me were that there were these people who would travel really long journeys to go out and gaze at these monks, just look at them. This this is the pilgrimage to living saints part of, of my work and how sensory their experiences were. Very many uh, descriptions of what their faces look like, their clothes look like. But one of the descriptions was about how from a distance they were all they were all singing together and one imagines they were singing psalms and the travelers were saying it felt like they were witnessing angels a chorus of angels so there was this kind of heaven on earth image so i got very interested in this kind of group singing and psalm singing was already goes back to jewish worship and christians adopted this And then I started getting interested, if you go a couple hundred years later, we start finding more mention of non-monastic Christians, just ordinary Christians um, singing together. So sermons would be sung, and often congregations would sing back a refrain or a line with the preacher. And it's not just sermons about what should you do and what does this Bible passage mean, that might be what some understandings of sermons are. These were actually retelling Bible stories from the perspective of the character 
So the preacher becomes that character. And the congregation, you might say, comes in as another character, comes in as maybe another, you know, a voice of judgment, a narrator, um, no way, <laughs> or yes, you know, just like any kind of uh, crowd would do in an acclamation or a denunciation. And that to me is also a form of embodiment. Through sound, you re enter another time, another place, another body, and you can move through different bodies in the story. And it's not just Christians who did this. So over the years, I became um, very interested in the work of other scholars, that this was done in Jewish worship. um, And also, um, some of these are in Aramaic, and some of these are in Greek. um, And so we have this idea of singing together as a way of Um, retelling stories from different perspectives. It's another way of engaging storytelling through one's body. And just as an aside, it's it's also been shown that when people sing together, their heartbeats become synchronized. Uh, Scholar at Lemoyne, Carmen McKendrick, stumbled upon some of this research in very interesting ways. And and so I find, I find that also interesting that singing is not just creating a soundscape, but it, it enters one's own body in a different way. Yes, I think that's right. It creates a collective body that feels together, that, that experiences the same kinds of temporality and I guess participates. So the congregation is no longer just listening. Mm-hmm. The congregation isn't an audience, it becomes an actor. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what you're describing, it sounds like is a kind of theatricality or a sort of theatrical participation, mm-hmm. or is it less theatrical than simply moving through a story together, experiencing a story together, and thereby somehow collectively affirming the moral of the story? It is theatrical if you think that there are different characters speaking in the first person. It's not theatrical in the sense that there are props or staging or, you know, any kind of costumes or any kind of scenery. And yet it's very theatrical because there's an audience. There's sometimes an internal audience. Like if you think about a Greek tragedy, the chorus would be on the stage as kind of witnessing these events and commenting upon them. And what was the chorus's relationship, say, to the, you know, the spectators? And what you know, what kind of energy is circulating in the room. So I think there's a lot of ways that thinking about these as theatrical events gets us to pay more attention to whose voices, who's feeling. Um, And it's not just feeling one character. It's a very empathic kind of feeling. You will speak other characters' voices in the course of this. The theatrical has been very helpful for thinking about um, how affecting these stories are. You get to sing with the villain. You get to sing with the good good people. You get to sing against the villain. You get to sing with God, a God's eye view. You get to sing from all perspectives. So it's a theater that's very much in the round in that, in that kind of empathic sense. So this is a very sophisticated form of convincing, educating, of conveying the messages of this new religion. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's almost like a very elaborate, expanded form of classical rhetoric? It is, and some stories do have morals, and some characters are, 
you know, cast positive as positive examples. Some are cast as negative examples, but I don't see it as much as inculcating dogma or so on. It's, it's really about plunging you into a messy situation and feeling all kinds of emotions, whether it's from compassion to pity to anguish around certain characters. So it is, it's a new religion. It's not quite, it's not necessarily a catechism in that sense of like transmitting a certain body of religious knowledge through storytelling. Um, although that does happen. It's very much linked, I think, more to thinking about the cycle of time. So not as a set of beliefs, but really in the course of a, a religious year, a liturgical year, what are the high points? What are the low points? What are the middle places? Um, if the story is following for early Christians, the life of Christ, what does the nativity feel like in your body? What does you know the impending death feel like? Um, what are the moments of glory? Uh, but it's also, there were these kinds of stories around Noah's Ark, around um, Elijah, biblical characters from the what Christians would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And uh, thinking about the course of time and the course of the year, how do you move through a story cycle? What you describe is very familiar to me as a scholar of 18th century music. And especially I'm thinking of Lutheran Germany and the elaborate musical constructions that came to be a central part of the Lutheran experience. It's an experience shared by everybody since everybody goes to church on Sunday and everybody becomes deeply familiar with a set of stories as the liturgical year progresses, with a set of texts, especially hymn texts and the melodies that go along with them. So you, you have this kind of some experience of the year that plays out every year and becomes ingrained in the voices, in the bodies of those, those, those individuals. And then, of course, that kind of knowledge is woven into brilliant artistic manifestations, the cantatas and passions by composers like Johann Sebastian Bach. It's a musical tradition that's very much about multiple voices telling stories that are punctuated by interruptions from the congregation, participating and reiterating or questioning or, or embodying various responses to particular characters. I, I don't know, is this, it seems to be surely connected to or a kind of echo of the much earlier practices that you're describing. It is. It's a way of engaging um, not the religious elite, but really trying to engage a wider audience to think and feel through a religion. We tend to think of the Protestant Reformation as a movement towards a literacy in religion. We've used literacy, being able to read the Bible. But that idea of using your whole self to understand something better. And that I could see as a continuity that one sees as the different ways religious groups try to know something through their bodies, through their being together, through beauty, through the things they make together, whether it's music or painting or art, and uh, to feel time together. How in the course of a liturgical year, a person becomes shaped by this. Georgia, you've mentioned shaping and making Let's move here to fabrication. Yeah. This is the fabrication year at the Society for the Humanities. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about how fabrication as a concept figures into your work this year? Mm-hmm. Well, after I wrote The Memory of the Eyes, I became very much more interested in ordinary Christians, not these uh, famous ascetics. And I, I got very interested also in sermons. I felt like we don't have a lot of writings by ordinary Christians, but we do have a lot of writings that recorded things that were speeches that were given to them, so sermons. And these some of these sermons were spoken and some of these were sung. And I started getting very interested in how rhetoric fit into this, how this kind of training to persuade people, to bring people together. And that's, this is all through the kind of education and rhetoric that many in the ancient world received, mostly men, and how preachers adopted these um, techniques. So some of these school books we have were about how do you make a speech that makes a famous figure from a story or from history come back to life, to make it vivid? How do you make something with words so that it can be pictured in the mind? It has a pictureability, some might say. So through rhetoric, I got very interested in the ways um, early Christian preachers and writers uh, used these kinds of tools and devices to, to make people feel things. And we have a lot of ancient uh, rhetorical handbooks about how to feel, how to make people feel anger, how to make a jury feel vindictive, or how to make a jury jury feel kind of lenient or merciful. And and that that kind of crossover got me very interested in um, thinking about how do you make adult new Christians feel. Christian, not just feel like a certain emotion and not just profess a certain set of beliefs. I think that's what feeling any religion sometimes is defined as. Well, if you can say what you believe, you are feeling it. I was really interested in how do you bring these uh, these folks together and without demanding a certain feeling, but by what techniques do you make them feel that to become this new identity requires it, uh, having a uh, maybe a slightly different way of thinking about one's emotional life. The fabrication was, I thought originally, oh, this is a great chance to delve into these rhetorical manuals to think about the making of emotions and to think how it translates into a certain kind of Christian storytelling and a certain Christian um, formation. Thinking uh, through these readings we're doing together in our two hours of conversation in our seminar, I've started noticing a lot more metaphors of fabrication, the process of fabrication going on in sermons. And so I'm especially interested in sermons for Christians who were preparing for baptism. And those sermons have often been read as well. They're full of water symbols because it was a ritual that involved um, large amounts of water. And I noticed that more and more of the sermons, as I reread them, were actually talking about um, dying in, in terms of um, coloring fabric or coloring skins. 
smelting, refining metalwork, um, carving statues, carving um, stone, um, carving wood, carving stone. So I started seeing, you know, through the through this year's theme, the material opens up in new ways I hadn't expected. Thinking about matter resisting the maker, um, it got me really interested in apprentices. How does one learn to do craft? What is the bodily aspect of craft? Um, and so that that's where I was saying the theme drew me to one aspect of my project. The conversations opened up several other aspects. That's fascinating. Are you finding that the process of forming the new Christian in that case, in the context of baptism, is figured as an apprenticeship or as a kind of learning by being, by doing, by following, rather than a learning by being told. I mean, I think of apprenticeships as being the kind of long process of learning from a master who shows rather than tells. Mm -hmm. And that's a thoroughly hands-on, craft-based way of gaining knowledge um, and way of gaining experience, as well as a way of testing experience as well. I think that's, you've put your finger right on it. It is that it's a different type of learning. So whereas I had always thought baptismal catechesis or instruction, it always sounds like knowledge transmission and, you know, very discursive, very propositional. And to think about how the metaphors are actually much more about the hands-on. And with hands-on, there has to be practice, there has to be repair, there has to be do-overs, materials don't behave as we wish and then they shatter and we have to start over again. So the this last month I've been reading a lot about the archaeology of workshops. What kind of junk did they leave behind? You know, the the the, the waste bin of a workshop it would be there would be strewn broken pieces or just semi-carved foots or a practice piece is a piece in which you can tell on stone that many different hands and tools have been used. So you can differentiate the different people, this one object passed through many hands as a way to practice, um, that it's intergenerational. I think that's interesting too. So it's this transmission of um, a kind of body knowledge. And what I found interesting is I thought, okay, so in early Christian preparation for baptism, are you the apprentice working in the teachers, your master? No, um, it's not just that. You are also the practice piece. You are the object itself. And sometimes in the sermons, right after you're baptized, when you finish the initiation, you still have it, wait a minute, this isn't set for good. Colors can fade. Things chip off. You're still very fragile or friable or, or breakable. How will you protect yourself? How will you keep these habits going? So... The process of craft got me to think a lot more about sequenced processes that are slow, um, that are sometimes unpredictable, and that require constant reworking. Um, and I thought that was very, you know, that is really only through thinking about makers and the frustrations that makers have that I started seeing more sides that were the, the to be baptized is to be the object, the apprentice, and eventually the artisan. That's very beautiful. 
And maybe we could expand that to ourselves too. We think we've polished ourselves in various ways, but then no, there are, there are chips and fractures that have to be worked on. Um, and maybe, maybe that also gets back to the idea of practice and alternative ways of acquiring knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think again about musical practices related to religion and of monastic singing, inscribing knowledge into the body through immense feats of repetition and memorization. The doing and the knowing they seem to somehow map onto one another. You mentioned this idea of copying and copying and imitation and memory, which can often be um, dismissed as rote and flat and soulless even. It is a way one feels one's way into something. And so that idea of repetition and practice um, is not a quest for originality. It's a quest for a deeper dwelling. So I am also thinking with the Fabrication Fellows, there are some of us who work on things from very early periods and some of us who are very much in the now. And yet we will find some ways that these notions, this notion of originality, for instance, or newness, um, how it's valued differently in different times and places. Let me ask you one final straightforward question. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that you think we should all know that has informed your research or informed the way you think about what you do as a scholar, what would that be? What should we be reading? My immediate thought was a book by Mary Carruthers called The Craft of Thought. I think it's, it's a brilliant book about the physicality of writing, the construction of ideas and thoughts, the materiality of of creativity. Um, And she is thinking also about um, there's labor involved in forgetting things too, that it it requires overlaying uh, new ideas and, and that there's this, just this very layered sense of human understanding it's a, a book I go back to so often. She is a clear and crisp writer um, who just uh, sees connections in such thoughtful ways. We've been talking today with Georgia Frank, Charles A. Dana Professor of Religion at Colgate University. The Humanities Pod is a production of the Society for the Humanities, introducing you to some of the new work, the current conversations, and the latest ideas of humanists at and around Cornell. The pod is produced by Tyler Lurie-Spicer. Our music is from the continuing story of Counterpoint by David Borden, performed and recorded by Mother Mallard's Portable Masterpiece Company. Our thanks go to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Cayuga Nation, on whose lands Cornell is situated.